Hi, creative. Today, there's a great guest who's going to teach you how to find your authentic voice and to shift from disappointment to excitement. But before we get to that, I want to remind you that if you love the show and it's helped you, the very best way to support it is by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps bring the show visibility, push it up the charts. And the biggest thing is it helps to connect with more creatives and more amazing guests. Also, if you like it, consider sharing it on your Instagram stories or Twitter. Tag the guest at Unleash Your Inner Creative and at Lauren LaGrasso, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Now let's get to the show. Are you wrestling with some disappointment in your creative journey? Wondering how to get honest about it without getting defeated? Do you wonder what your deep, true voice really even sounds like? Today's guest has some amazing tips on how to recover from creative heartbreak, shift your perspective from disappointment to excitement, and find your truest voice and self. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, public speaker, actor, and creative coach. And this show is meant to give you tools to claim the word creative, take fear out of the driver's seat, and love yourself enough to pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. On the show, we explore the creative process and journey, mental health, self-development, spirituality, and everything it means to be a human and how to become more human. Today's guest is a singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, voice teacher, author, speaker, and creative coach named M. Greiner. She's best known for touring with David Bowie, her successful career as an indie artist, writing her recent book, The Healing Power of Singing, and for inspiring artists with her writing such as Jan Arden, Sarah of Tegan and Sarah, and even Bono of U2. On today's show, we talk about a whole slew of important topics ranging from the importance of vulnerability and how to get more vulnerable, to how to put a different spin on disappointment, to tips for multi-passionate creatives. We also go deep into how you can begin to recover from both present creative heartbreak and past creative heartbreak that you maybe haven't worked through or have repressed. And most importantly, she gives you tips on how to literally and figuratively find your authentic voice your singing voice, your speaking voice, and maybe even the voice of your soul. It's an amazing chat. Now here she is, M. Griner. Okay, I'm obsessed with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I cannot wait to get into your incredible story. Thank you. It's such an honor to be here with you. Oh, So you're the queen of the bounce back, reinvention, vulnerability, finding your true voice. But before we get into that, can we talk about the fact that your parents wrote a newspaper about chickens and ran it? I'm fascinated by this, and I have to know how it affected your creative journey. Yeah, so an odd upbringing. I grew up in Canada, close to where you're from, I think, Michigan, right? Yes. You know what? I was just listening to that in the interview. You're saying you're really influenced by Detroit radio, and I'm like, same, same. Yeah, totally. And all those Detroit, you know, TV stations and everything. And I grew up kind of isolated pre-internet, all of that. And my parents, I didn't know any anything different than what their job was, which was they were newspaper owners. They crafted a newspaper about chickens in our basement. And on the weekends, they would go to these things called poultry shows, sort of like the chicken version of the Christopher Guest best in show type of a thing. This was showing your chicken, which is really odd, but that was my childhood. I suppose, even though it was really odd, it showed me that I could be my own boss because my parents Mm -hmm. really ran the whole thing themselves. And even though it was about chickens, 
my mom especially was an amazing role model because she would connect with all of these people. I I mean, I think she learned more about chickens. She came from the Philippines. So (laughs) her story is really amazing. You know, she came over, she was a nurse, and then suddenly she's a chicken expert. So yeah, they were real role models for me. And something I'm fascinated by with you is how able and willing you are to drop into vulnerability. When I was reading your bio, you have a bio unlike anyone else that I've ever read. You tell your whole story. And you also have this incredible video on your website where you go through like all the pain points in your life and you're like, and that's what led me to today. And here's how we can work together to help you become more vulnerable and open and authentic in your voice and otherwise. Mm -hmm. How did you get to be this way? Was it something modeled for you? How did you grow to be able to access that kind of vulnerability and courage? Well, thanks. That's a really great thing for you to say. I think that it was recent. So being a singer songwriter most of my life, and I know you can relate to this, you're vulnerable in your music, right? And people can interpret that in a number of different ways. They can feel your pain, they can channel their own pain or joy through your music. And I thought I was like, kind of I had the vulnerability thing down, right? For a long time, I'm like, okay, I'm really putting it all out there. But when things kind of hit the fan, I guess, my marriage broke up, in 2016, I was really wrestling with the grief of Bowie passing away. Also what that meant to be in his band after losing my own record deal. So it was like kind of like tragedy layered upon tragedy to maybe not be in his band anymore. There are just so, tons of stuff that I was not aware that I was carrying. And like it happens to a lot of people later in life, you crash and burn from the overwhelm or the burnout of being a mom or an artist or whatever. And that's when I found the strength of like my girlfriends to pull me out of it like slowly. Right. And also people like you who do podcasts and like share, like make a community for people to share their stories that helped me kind of get out of it as well. So once you see other people saying that happened to me too, And this is where my life has gone. It really inspired me to share outside of music. So instead of just in lyrics, suddenly I'm saying, I wrestled with this, you know, divorce. I have two small kids. I thought I was doing great as a musician. Wasn't really doing that great. (laughs) Yeah. So I think it's just about drawing from the strength of other people kind of rolling the dice with putting your story out there. And I know we're in such a culture of sharing that sometimes it's just like, oh gosh, does everyone need to share? But yeah, I, I think it just came from being tired of holding it inside. Yeah, and I think you make a great point about the sharing. I think when you're sharing authentically, it's much different than being like, let me feign this vulnerability so that I seem relatable. Like mm-hmm. when you have to share because you have to share, mm-hmm. that's when it's good. Mm-hmm. And for you, I, I think it like it just adds so much to the music. I like listening to your music now or reading your book or going to your website, knowing your full story because it's that much more impactful to me because I'm like, this is the human behind the artist. And that's why this show has gone from being like, how can we help people unleash your inner creative? Yes, that's still the most important thing. But I just realized unless you love yourself and know yourself and trust yourself, you can't really fully unleash. And so Mm -hmm. to me, watching what you do is such a testament to that. Thank you. 
You're welcome. Yeah, I have been talking to some clients about this. I do creativity coaching and it's almost impossible to be creative unless you have healed some of the difficult stuff, right? So not that that is my expertise. Sometimes it's about recommending like maybe therapy works with coaching. Maybe you need to explore this and that and then we can try to get creative and have fun or take baby steps towards being creative. Yeah. So speaking of vulnerability, can we get into your story a little bit? I know you were incited to love music. You played classical piano and we were listening to jazz at home with your parents. And then we're inspired (laughs) by this Detroit radio. And then you have this wild story where you found a cassette tape on the side of the road. Can you tell me more? That's like God dropping something in front of you that, you know, when I first started writing music, I found guitar picks in my bedroom, have no Mm. clue where they came from. And suddenly I was able to play guitar when I'd like done nothing but mute strings my whole life. So wow, I do believe these things are dropped from the universe. But tell me a little bit about this tape drop and how that led to your record deal. I love you calling it a tape drop. I'm going to call it that from now on. It all began with the tape drop. (laughs) It's funny because it really, you know, nothing says like the 80s, like I found a tape on the side of the road. But what happened was my brothers, I have two older brothers, they used to bottle hunt up and down the Lakeshore Road where we lived on Lake Huron. And sadly, you could get a lot of bottles back in the 80s and turn them into sweet cash. And I didn't really do that. But I was walking along the same road and I found this cassette tape. And it was uh, labeled Coney Hatch, which is a band from Canada. They, I'm not going to say they had like wild success, but they toured with Iron Maiden. So there's something. But uh, I took this tape home and I pieced it back together because it was all torn up, torn apart. And I think I was around 13 or 14 at the time and I played it. And it was sort of like just this raw rock and roll. I hadn't really heard something like this before. And... I decided this band was going to be my band Mm. and I listened to them and listened to them. And then when I started writing songs, I hunted down the guitar player uh, who's also a writer in that band. And I sent him my songs and he was at this place in his life living in Toronto where he was looking to produce artists. So it was this amazing, perfect, like, match I was looking to be produced he was a producer and that started my whole career and from there you went on to get a record deal because this had always been a dream for you you visualized it you had a deep knowing that it would happen at 21 and take me through that I know it ended in a disappointment but then you picked yourself back up but let's hear how that all went down sure I didn't find the record deal by the side of the road. <laughs> it was... Darn. So No, it was... I was touring in Toronto a lot, trying to really hone the craft of being a singer-songwriter. You got to get out there and play, right? And I've seen you play and you're amazing. Mm-hmm. And every step kind of pushes you forward. But at some point I was like, I want the record deal. So I found a manager. I got a publicist to sort of spread the word about a record that I had made. And... The next thing I knew, I was signed to Mercury Records worldwide at 21. And it was like a big recording budget. I got to go to London, England, do the whole. I was really into Britpop at that time and made this album that I love. And then within a year, I was dropped. 
because there was an acquisition. Seagram's had taken over Polygram, which is the parent company of Mercury. They fired everyone. They dropped thousands of artists, except some artists were sent over to Def Jam or Island, like Sting and Cheryl Crow. Yeah. Sting and Cheryl Crow, no hard feelings. Um, (laughs) We're fine. Healthy artists with long careers. But yeah, I, I think in hindsight, I found it really traumatic. But at the time, I was just like, let's keep going. You know, like, I've got something going here. I'm touring. And I didn't process the the grief of losing that mm. opportunity. But ironically, the album I made after that, which was just on my own in a cottage, it was an eight track album. It cost $500 to make. And this was quite a contrast to my major label album, which was $250,000 for the budget. It did better than my major label album. It got more of a chance to come out. People I really respect wrote me letters about how they loved the album and a lot of my fans loved it and it gave me the the fuel to really not look back I kind of flirted with being on a label again in the 2000s but essentially I was just kind of going for it and it felt right it felt right for me I have a few questions from that I think it's an amazing story number one what do you think the role of a major label is in 2021 I mean like for an artist who's up and coming and trying to make it when if at all should they be considering that that's an awesome question well I would never say that it's just a bad idea just because it didn't really work out for me I think that if you're willing to take a 360 view of your career and say I want to be not essentially a product But I want to be that big star that hundreds of people are relying on, huge merchandising, huge tours. If that's what you want, you need, I think you need that kind of a machine. And I have sort of like separated myself from the value of that for so long. It's not really been something that I think is attractive. So I wouldn't say that I'm the expert, but I do know the difference now between being able to answer like, what do I want? What do I think I want? Mm. What's going to be sustainable? And that's really hard because when you're 21, you want, I know I wanted to be like Madonna or something, right? And then through touring with David Bowie and kind of my own evolution, I realized that I want something manageable. Like I I like to do a lot of different things. So I don't want to be caught in a cycle of like kind of being on someone else's calendar. And you don't really know that until you live a bit of life and realize what it is that you want, right? I don't know. What, what would you say about that? I'd love to know your answer. Well, I don't know. I mean, for me, I think that the independent road has been really hard. I'm like you where I like doing a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. But there has been a part of me that's like, if I had pursued that or if I did try now to pursue that, would it go differently for me? I'm seeing people who are kind of like in a similar genre to me or I think a similar talent level to me growing bigger. And I'm wondering how they're doing that. And I know there's a lot of luck and hard work, of course, but a lot of luck. Yeah. And I'm kind of at a crossroads right now. I don't know what I think about that. I just know Mm -hmm. I want my music to grow more than it has. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the silver bullet answer is or if there is even one. 
Yes. I wrestle with that issue with a lot of my clients that are in music careers, like burgeoning music careers. Mm-hmm. And it's, you can't really say there's one roadmap for them. Right. But I do think that, I don't know. I feel like it might be better now than in the 2000s, like mm. the early 2000s, in terms of there are, there are different levels of making it work now, I think. You know, we're past all the all the surprise of like streaming and all of that. We get it. Like, it's not what you'd rely on as an income. I see people really branching out a lot. And I, I love what you do because you do so, so many things. But I think that the key is whatever level you want, if you can visualize it happening and not mm. concentrate on the lack. So I think yeah. by being dropped by my label, there was a huge period of just like kind of subconsciously kind of feeling a bit of lack. And I think that that holds you up, whatever level you want to be at. So I kind of encourage others and myself to really visualize that level of success that you want and how far do you want to go with it and I do think it can happen if you really make it a priority. Okay, you just sparked me on because here's the the thing I'm in, and I'm sure a lot of people deal with this too. People a lot lately have been asking me like, how's the music going? Mm-hmm. And I mean, on an artistic level, great, super happy, like creating a lot of music, gigging when I can. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, it's not growing as much as I want it to. Mm-hmm. And so when people ask me that question, because I try to be honest and vulnerable, I feel like if I don't say the truth of that, I'm lying. Mm-hmm. But I also don't want to like ha- put out there the energy that like, oh, it's not doing well, because I think mm-hmm. that there's like an energetic consequence to that too. Mm-hmm. How do you visualize and intend something great while staying honest about where you are? That's a great question. And I want to just say that for a good two decades, I was definitely trying to project that I was fierce, indie, doing my thing. Like I had these little badges that said DIY or die. And I think that was not being honest with my disappointment over being more successful, right? So I think that I would say it's about trust and knowing that it will grow. And that's a really hard thing, right? Because we're so used to looking at what is happening in the moment with like the checks that are coming in or this, like the whole followers and numbers thing. Oh, forget it. Yeah, it's an impossible chase, right? So I think it's about trust and knowing that it is going to grow and taking a little action towards what is like in the spirit of what is already working, right? Right, yeah. So I don't know if, if someone that was, was a satisfying answer. No, no, I think it is. <laughs> I just want to ask, like, if someone's asking, let's say someone out there is like me, they're like in their creative thing, it's happening, they've had some great success, they are loving the stuff they're putting out, but it's not where they want it to be. And someone's saying, how is blank going? How would you mm-hmm. advise them to answer authentically and still in a way that is going toward their visualization? Well, if someone were to ask me, And for sure, the pandemic has taught me I want to grow my music. Like my coaching business is great. It's going really great. But when I when someone says, yeah, how's the music going, which I know I asked you right off the top when we logged on here, it can hit a nerve. And lately, I've been focusing on what I'm excited about instead of what might be going wrong, right? Because if you look at it realistically, no matter what level you're at, there'll be something going wrong, right? 
Right. So if you can, like for my, for, for me right now, I'm really excited about going to Nashville to make a new album, right? I mean, there could be any number of things that get in the way of that, but lately it's almost like you bite your, you have to bite your tongue. And, (laughs) and if you're like me, who I am in a good place and I do feel like I can guide people, but I was raised kind of in a critical environment. So I tend to project that negativity. So it's almost like I have to practice not to answer with, well, like that kind of a vibe and instead just catch myself and say, I'm really excited because I'm going to Nashville in February to make an album. That is such great advice. Yeah. And it feels unnatural if you've lived a life of sort of like settling into those expectations of the struggling artist that everyone has for everyone, right? That is amazing advice because there's like a million things I'm excited about with my music. Like it doesn't have to be about the disparity between where I am and where I want to be. It could be about, Mm -hmm. I just wrote a new song last week and it's cool. It's like on a DJ track and it's dance music. Mm -hmm. I'm super excited to see if I can put it out. That is really, really great advice. And I hope you listening, take that to heart. Next time someone asks you, how is blank going? Yeah. And I don't think it's lying either, right? It's not. It's true. Like even you just talking about that track, you just totally lit up, right? Yeah. And I think it's about trusting and knowing that it will happen. And when we focus on the things we're excited about, we generate more of that like, ah, that relief and release that like, okay, it is going to happen. I'm not going to talk about the stuff. Like, like you could, there, maybe there's like one person that you just let it all out to like, this is shitty or something. Right. Right. But like the tendency with artists and creative people is just be like, okay, this is the, this is what's really going on in every facet. And here it is. And I don't think we need to tell everyone everything. Mm -hmm. You're right. Because not everybody can hold it for us in a way that is helpful. And also, even those trusted people, I'm working on being a bit more focused on the the things I'm excited about with them. Because I notice, like with my partner, who I will tell everything to, you know, I was doing an event the other day, and it was a great event. And going to it, I was just feeling that pandemic introvert, antisocial vibe. And I was just like, oh, I just kind of want to be home. <laughs> just want to be sitting on the couch. And when I got to the event, it wasn't that I felt bad that I put that energy out, but it didn't help me, right? right? So I think just being, again, like catching yourself sometimes before you go there. Right. And I know you said after the record deal didn't pan out, you didn't really let yourself grieve. You went straight into something else and it worked out for you. But that's what I call creative heartbreak when what mm-hmm. we thought was going to happen, you're so close and then it was snapped away from you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I heard and your that's episode a, talking about that. Oh, wasn't that Greg Holden, man? Like, I've I've never met such a vulnerable cisgender man. <laughs> totally, it was amazing, amazing conversation. Yeah. He blew me away. Also, my dad was sitting in the room the whole time we were having that conversation, <laughs> which is hilarious. That's great. Um, yeah, he he Greg was very generous to let my dad be there. But how would you advise young artists recover from things like that in their creative journey? I think. Grieving what has happened is really hard. I wish I had a mentor or a coach when I was younger. I had a manager and that's not really the same because they have an interest, right? In like raking in the dough with you. So they're going to maybe suggest some things to you that are more in line with their interests, right? So maybe 
finding a coach or a mentor or a, a fellow I don't know why I'm just thinking that you're asking about a female artist. <laughs> Maybe I'm thinking of well, my Well, you know, experience. 85% of my listenership is female. So we love the guys. We love the non-binary friends. But we do have a lot of women listening. So mm-hmm. it's probably you're well, using your intuition. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about those powerful bonds with whoever that you find in your life. To be able to admit what has happened and talk about it, get it out. So that you can pave the way for the next opportunity. Because I I find that it's not really young artists who get delusion, like feel let down about creative heartbreak. It's, It's a lot of women my age, like in your 40s and later, who have really just gunned ahead after their creative heartbreak, had really successful careers in other areas, like started a family. And then it just hits them like, hits them that oh my gosh I really wish that I had done this or I want to do this before it's too late and I think in that case it's about kind of taking those fresh eyes sort of the teenager view of and having that blind faith again that we just kind of some for some reason we just let it go when we're older we know too much or have too many responsibilities right so tapping into a bit of that again yeah I think I try to channel myself as like a 23-year-old knowing nothing about how hard the music industry was and just like calling House of Blues and being like, can I play here? I <laughs> and then they it. said, yes. The guy said he thought he heard of me. I'm like, you definitely haven't, but thanks. <laughs> Book me. But yeah, I didn't know I anything. That. You know, and it, it being too dumb to know better is actually <laughs> usually an asset. So tap into that stupidity. We all deserve it. Yeah. And in some ways it's fun. A few years ago, I had a band called Trapper, and we asked Def Leppard if we could open for them in arenas. Like, what a ridiculous question. And yeah, I know the members of the band, but that doesn't guarantee that we would ever get a spot on a major tour like that. And they said yes, right? So uh, it's, I don't know why we just think that it's never going to happen or the world doesn't work in our favor. And I think when you're when you're not aware so much, maybe you have more of an, a tendency to dream. Mm-hmm. You're such a go-getter too. And you're amazing at pitching. I have to say like the way you, you pitched me to come on the show was super helpful and like specific to what I'm doing. And you peppered it with a compliment, which I know you meant genuinely, but it meant so much to me because it was like clear that you'd listen to what I'd done. So hearing this story about you pitching to Def Leppard, it's clear that this is something you're excellent at. And a lot of creatives <laughs> struggle with this piece of the right. the ask. Right. What would be your advice for how to formulate a compelling and genuine pitch? That's a great question. And thank you for saying yes, by the way. That oh, yeah. I mean, it was awesome. And, well. and also you were like a listener of the show. I mean, it, it meant a, a lot. So thank you. Thanks. So I think what I would say is that it has given me a lot of strength in the asking department to work on my skills, right? So if you, you can't just like think positively and hope someone will say yes, I knew that I could pull off an arena show or else I wouldn't have asked. And I knew you and I would have an awesome conversation or I wouldn't have asked And what are the things that lead you to that? So for singing in the arena, I need to make sure my voice is up to par. I need to make sure that 
this band is good. And for our conversation, I need to make sure that I'm actually going to bring something to your show. Like you've talked to so many people. And I think always kind of researching and learning too, right? So my book, for example, wouldn't be in existence if I didn't teach people and see what it was that they needed because I wasn't a teacher before 2018. I really looked down on it, actually. And then because well, people com- say that awful thing, those that can't do teach, it's teach, like, yep. that's couldn't be further from the truth. And teaching always makes you better at doing. <laughs> yeah. And it like, it really is true. It's not just a line, right? Like I, I've learned so much about my voice by teaching other people. And then in terms of coaching, like I took a coaching course during the pandemic, it really wasn't like a pandemic project. It just happened to happen in the pandemic. And all of those things give you confidence for asking. So I would say, if you feel a little like, you know, you need to up your skills, just dive into whatever it is that you need to know. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned your book, The Healing Power of Singing, you know, you go into your full story in there and share how people can really access their voice and be more authentic in the way they literally like tell their story and through Mm -hmm. their vocal cords. I know something else you mentioned in the book and in this interview is you worked with David Bowie and it's, that's incredible. But I also produce huge, huge podcasts, like Mm -hmm. some of the biggest ones in the world. Mm -hmm. And I know from doing that, while it is such an honor and a privilege and so exciting, and it does make me better at my job hosting and and singing and doing all the other things. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it also feels like I'm so close to what I really, really deeply want. Mm. And yet I've never been further away. And I know that the opposite mm. viewpoint of that is you're so close because you're going toward that thing. Mm. But I, I have like a deep kinship with you because I can imagine how that would feel. Mm-hmm. What was that like? And yeah, did you feel any of that piece that I'm talking about? Yes. And it's so great because no one's really asked that question. And I love the way you phrased it. Singing with Bowie was not something that I had planned for. I got invited into the band to be a backing vocalist. And I had just been dropped from my label. So I was in this place of like, woohoo, let's just say yes to anything. I don't know David Bowie. Like I, I didn't really know all of his music. Seemed like a nice opportunity. My friend was already singing with him. I thought we'd have fun. What I didn't plan for was coming back to Canada to my own solo career and having everyone ask, so what's he like? And not asking about my own music, right? That was difficult, I think. And I wrestled with that for a long time. And only many, many years later did I kind of see that it's just a tiny bit ungrateful, you know, like I wasn't really focused on the gratitude of like how I could be grateful for that experience, what I could learn, but I was also not really confident in my own path. Mm. And lately I have become more confident about my own music. And I, I say to myself, like, sure. A lot of people want to ask about David Bowie. They want to know what he was like. They think that's the pinnacle of my career. I think it's a chapter in my story, right? And he has inspired me so much. So I don't know if I'm totally answering your question correctly, but I wrestled with it for a long time, the high and the low of it, because I was able to glimpse fame through his, you know, being backstage and being part of his life for a little while. That answered a lot of questions for me. So that was kind of nice. Mm. 
But it answer. It sort of answered for me that it's not as exciting as we all think, right? He was really lit up about the inner workings of music, like being in the studio, the actual writing and a lot of the art. And he was really jazzed about the internet because it had just come out. (laughs) So I, (laughs) I took away that the exciting parts that have sort of lasted for him they didn't have to do a celebrity. And maybe that's easy to say because he was a celebrity and whatever. But to me, he really lit up when the work was about the creativity. And it almost felt like, okay, if he had no fans anymore and he was still doing his music and, and everything, he would be perfectly happy. That's kind of how it struck me. So I guess I took away from that I felt a sort of kinship with him that that's me too. Like, I don't need to have a million trillion fans. I'd like to have some, but I'm really lit up by the process, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was like the things you were already doing were the things that he loved anyway. Like, we can think that those people, we can put them on a pedestal and feel so removed or feel like, what do they have that I don't? But it's like, they're literally doing exactly what you're doing. Yeah, totally. And that is a gift, right? And I'm sure you've had lots of brushes with lots of really established people. And a lot of their issues are the same as every level of the music business is just a different context. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting, too, because like I've had all these weird experiences. Cool, weird, but cool. Where like, I got to talk to Eckhart Tolle, Tolle, I don't know, Mm -hmm. to this day for like an hour, because the person interviewing him was running late and we talked mm. about like Santa Barbara and going out to eat. Like That's I've had, a, and, and then I've like had these really, really smart, brilliant, cool, established people trust me. And I will say too, there's something to working with someone who is in a different echelon than you are, or like a more well-known echelon where you're like, mm-hmm. well, if they trust me and think I'm smart. Maybe I am mm. <laughs> like, who am I to fight with? so-and-so on this. Yeah, for sure. And that's, yeah, I talk in my book about getting out there. Mm -hmm. And that's the danger of the social media thing where we think we can build an empire online. And we can, right? Mm -hmm. We've seen people do it. I get it. But I think there's something really amazing about really connecting with people and giving them the chance to see you and see what you do because then you get that feedback from them. And it's not about external validation, I don't think. It's just about like being around energetic people, right? Mm -hmm. And that can really be so much better in person. Yeah, totally. I don't think there's anything like it. To go into your book again. So if we've lost our voice, like figuratively, or literally, maybe not lost it, but like it's way out of practice. We don't even know what it is anymore. We've been pushing it down for a long time. How would you advise people begin to discover it again? That's a great question. So I guess there's so much about breathing. I mean, it's we've all heard about diaphragmatic breathing. The diaphragm is really located where your like center of worth is your sacral. And I think it's really, I don't talk about that a whole lot in the book and I don't, maybe I don't at all, but it's amazing that once you start to look into the proper way to support your voice, 
you're almost tapping into upping your sense of self-worth. It's all in that same area. And singing is such a full body thing that in order to do it, in order to bring that voice forward, you need to step into the full body thing. I talk about the way that singing is like a sport Mm-hmm. And you can't help but just rise up when you do that. So even little things like vocal exercises, I have a sample one on YouTube. I did it um, before the show. It was very did helpful. You? Oh yeah. my gosh, you're amazing. And some breathing. Like you know, we we sometimes go through a whole day without really tapping into a powerful breath. I talk about how when you want to sing. If you're just breathing with your upper body, it's sort of like filling up your gas tank, a quarter tank and trying to go on a road trip. Like you need to fill it up completely. And you'd be surprised once you work on the physicality of singing, how that really bleeds into other parts of life. I've had like coaching clients come to me for singing and we end up, you know, over the course of six sessions singing maybe 15 or 20 minutes because They just needed to come to me to show me their voice, even if their camera's off or something, they're just, they will sing for me. But then it breaks down these walls where they're able to, because they were brave enough to sing, to share exactly what you were talking about earlier, the vulnerability, the hard show their, their pain and where they want to move uh, forward in their lives. So it's all connected. Yeah. And I love that you say anyone can sing because I feel the same way. You know, it's like when people are like, oh, well, I can't sing a note. I'm like, but you should like try, even if it's just for fun, like it's going to make you so much happier. Mm -hmm. It's such a beautiful thing to share your voice with someone. It's it's Mm -hmm. an honor to hear somebody sing regardless Mm -hmm. because they're putting a little bit of their soul out. Mm -hmm. How, How do you advise people who maybe maybe they've always wanted to sing, but they thought they never could? Is it through the breathing? Like, where do they start? Well, I think it's about removing expectations, right? So we measure ourselves against whoever's on the radio or on our Spotify or whatever. We measure ourselves in crazy ways. If you think of your favorite singers, they're not always just textbook wonderful singers. Like, they've got something unique about their voice, right? And then there's also the fact that so many of us grew up with negative comments about our voice or someone said one little thing and it derailed us for our whole lives, which that's not really fair to you, especially if it happened when you're younger because your brain was developing, right? So moving past the negative self-talk about your voice, because everyone's like exactly what you said, like, I don't want to, you don't want to hear me sing that whole thing, Mm -hmm. just getting rid of that and just giving it a try and maybe putting yourself in an environment that's safe. So like a choir or like singing with friends or karaoke or something that's not so microscopic, right? And then the breathing. Do you have any advice for people who are consistently breathing into their chest? Like how do they start deepening their breath into their diaphragm, their belly and beyond? Yeah, so I think a lot of it is about recognizing that you don't need to learn this kind of breathing. You already do it, right? Right. So we did it as babies. That's why when you're on the plane and the babies are so loud, it's because they're using this muscle, the diaphragmatic muscle. And if you just like lie down, actually, (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't know if you've had anyone like do yes instructional things on your show, but like if you lie on your back and you put your phone on your belly, for example, and you breathe in, sometimes with the nose is easier. Your belly should rise and your phone should fall off or something. And that's just like a start to tap into it, right? It just takes a second to switch the flip that switch from this upper breathing we do all day, which can be kind of frantic too when we're stressed out mm-hmm. and we're at work, just to drop down into that belly breathing. And there's tons of videos too about how to do it. Something else I've been seeing you talk about a lot is getting sober. I know you got sober during the pandemic, which is incredible. Thanks. One of the hardest times to get sober. I think most people went in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. How do you feel that getting sober has helped you creatively, business-wise, and just on a human level? That's a great question. And I would never preach to other people that it is the way. It was my way. And I didn't go into it thinking, I'm going to like give up alcohol. And I, I actually did it a month before everything shut down. <laughs> Good timing. Wow. And like mark my words, anyone who knows me knows that I was like super tight with like the bottle of scotch. Like it was my... It was my go-to. I I honestly didn't think I could perform without it or do much of anything without it. I just thought, I'm not that interesting. I need this, right? But I think what happened is I started to count on my hand the amount of times that the results of drinking were destructive in my life, whether it was like not sleeping very well. So then not being a great parent and kind of like lashing out, yelling, or like with my ex making bad decisions in that marriage or at shows, just kind of not being at my best, just sort of trying to make it fun for myself. So I decided to just try to stop, just see how it went. And the first couple of weeks were pretty difficult But then after that, I really didn't miss it. And how has it helped me? It's helped me just really step into nurturing my voice so that I can guide other people. It's made sleep so much better. I feel more energetic. So therefore, I can exercise, which really helps me. It's just like a chain reaction. And there's a history of it in my family and I didn't want to repeat that for my kids. Mm. They were huge inspirations. They are huge inspirations to me. So yeah, I I'm really grateful, grateful for that. There's also the social element. I live in a small town and sometimes it's like you become a little bit unrelatable to most people, (laughs) but you just kind of have to stand in your, stand in your strength unrelatable to the people in a small town or at large? Well, yeah, I guess that's a that's a good question. A lot of people did ask, well, how did that did that help you in the pandemic? Like I they can't imagine, right? I think it's just different. Some people are relieved to hear about that story of me giving it mm-hmm. up because it gives them some power to try to make changes in their lives. But yeah, I think sometimes the environment that you're in I wouldn't expect everyone to understand why I did it, right? Right. Why I'm doing it. And that's fine. So I think that's a good lesson in general. It's like realizing that any decision you make has the potential and likely will trigger someone else. (laughs) (laughs) And you have to get to be fine with it because if it's the right thing for you, you can let them have their reaction because Mm -hmm. it's not about you and Mm -hmm. then move on with your life. 
Absolutely. And in this culture of comments and everyone weighing in on things, that's a big challenge. So I love that you said that. And I hope people can take something, take something away from, from that, that it's not about their reaction or they're welcome to have their reaction. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. They're welcome to have the reaction, but realizing it's about them, not you. Yes, because a decision exactly. you make that literally affects no one else besides you should affect no one else besides you. Like if you decide to get sober or eat in a certain way or take mm-hmm. on a new career path, as long as you're taking care of the people you're responsible for and yourself, mm-hmm. people can have an opinion if they'd like, but it matters not. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know what's great, though, is that we're talking about it because if anyone's listening to this thinking that they want to make a change or they're in the middle of making a change, that's all part of the journey is realizing that that's part of being vulnerable is like admitting how it'll affect you when it affects other people, right? We're not going to just make a big change in our lives and it won't be, it's just not going to be like a seamless kind of a thing especially with family, right? So anyway. Yep. Family might be the toughest one of all. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You put out art during the pandemic. I've done the same. It's it's a different kind of experience, right? Mm -hmm. How has it been for you? I know you've put out music. You obviously put out your book. Like what, what is it like putting it out now versus before? I think with putting the book out and I, I start with that because it's kind of been a lifelong dream to release a book. And at certain points, I've wondered about releasing a book about singing (laughs) in a global pandemic that involves a respiratory illness, right? It seems almost like, well, good luck with that. (laughs) And I think what I learned is about adjusting expectations and how that can be really empowering. So I think it's about connecting with people authentically instead of trying to become a bestseller. I think about the reason why I wrote the book, which is to help whoever it can reach. I never wrote it to be like an author of some kind of stature. In fact, when it came out, I was like, oh no, (laughs) it's out now. And I kind of love that because it it's the spirit of the book that it's about giving. And a lot of people have said when they read the book, they feel like they're having a conversation with someone and they feel mm-hmm. connected. And I, that's the greatest compliment to me. So I wasn't able to do a big book tour. I've done a few little things here and there. There have been some online events that are sort of like, well, <laughs> that was interesting, right? But you got to see the humor in it. And in terms of songwriting, I wonder what it's been like for you. I've just kind of reconnected with my teenage self and wanted to do, you know, that kind of soul R&B, like go yeah. back to the Detroit um, radio. Yeah. WJLB. What? Yes. Just kind of right in that vein. And it spawned this whole album. I'm calling it a Yacht Rock album, but it's going to be. I'm excited. A lot of a lot of different things. So, yeah, it's been great. How has it been for you? Well, I think it took the pressure off for me, kind of like what you were saying. Like when I put out my song Rise, which came out maybe three weeks into the pandy mm-hmm. or at least into the lockdown. Yeah. I was just like, well, there's literally nothing I can do. Like the world is ending. So mm-hmm. might as well put out the song. And 
That one was pretty amazing because it got featured in People magazine. So that was like, mm-hmm. what? Okay, mm-hmm. I guess things are fine in a way. And then there have definitely been times where it felt like because you can't do like there was when I put out my song Freak Show, which was fall 2020, I couldn't do a show to support it. Like I couldn't mm-hmm. go around telling people about it. I was literally seeing no one at this point. So it definitely felt like, did it even happen? It was mm-hmm. like, if mm-hmm. a song drops in a pandemic, did it drop at all? <laughs> yeah, totally. So yeah, I think I've I've varied. I've 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 felt at times like wow, it was kind of empowering, and at mm-hmm. times like I kind of wish that there was more of an opportunity to push this harder. But I think you've inspired me because I feel like you've gotten more creative in the way you've put things out, and so it's like it's about finding new ways versus leaning on the old. Mm-hmm. And you know what else is really interesting is I put a jazz record out in the middle of the pandemic and wasn't able to tour it, really didn't promote it. And now that we're hopefully coming out of it, I'm getting a lot of people coming up to me asking like, when are you going to perform some of those songs? And I think it's a testament a little bit to if you put out something that people are interested in, they're going to eventually want to engage with it, right? Right. And nothing can really get in the way of that. So in a way, that's one interesting thing that has never really happened to me before. You've also mentioned so many different genres and that makes me feel really happy because I want to release so many different genres. Yeah. Do you feel like when you do a genre, because I just wrote that like dance music song, when you do a genre switch, because you went from like doing stuff that would have worked with Death Leopard to doing jazz and now you're doing this yacht rock, do you explain it to people or are you just like, here it is? I'm wondering how to approach that. I would say that I've done it from such an early stage in my career that my hardcore fans don't get thrown for a loop. In fact, they really support me through everything. But recently, there's a producer I'm working with on this next record. His name's Fred Mullen, and he's a lovely guy. And he was sort of like, you know what? You're you're confusing people. <laughs> he's like, you're doing one thing and then you do another thing. And I think it's just going to be, you can't please everyone, right? So you yeah. have to do what you want to do. And I, growing up where we grew up, like there were so many different genres to absorb and they've all touched me, right? So I love Guns N' Roses as much as I love Anita Baker. And yeah, like- I have to tell so, you my story about Anita Baker. No, you don't have an Anita Baker story. I do. You? She she grew up, so I grew up in Gross Point, which yeah. is like literally, I saw you every day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my grandma was born in Windsor. Okay. And so Anita Baker lived in Gross Point. And mm-hmm. I think she still does. I'm not 100% sure. And I want you to finish what you're saying, but I have to tell you this. And I don't think I've ever said this on air. So one of my best friends growing up lived on this street. And I had never like met her mom or dad before I knew her dad was remarried. And I knocked on the door and I was like, hi, are you Mrs. Insert my best friend's last name here? And I truly thought she was my friend's stepmom. <laughs> and Anita, it was Anita Baker. But what? I didn't realize it at the time. And she was like, No. They live next door. <laughs> no way. And I was like, oh, cool. And then I got in, like my dad had dropped me off. And when I got back in the car, he goes, do you know that was Anita Baker? <laughs> I would have She couldn't back. have been nicer. She couldn't oh have been God, nicer. So that's amazing. Yeah. I love her so much. She's she super down to earth. I mean, she never left Detroit. She's just like super loyal to the soil. 
Oh, that's amazing. If she's listening, I would like to do out with you and eat a baker. Yes. Yeah. Let's make it happen. We're visualizing yeah. it. Yeah. I'll just so- go knock on her door again. <laughs> Be like, listen, M really wants to work with you. So it'd be great if you could do that. Also, do you want to have lunch? (laughs) That's the asking, right? Just taking it to the next level. I'll meet you in Gross Point. Yes, yes. We'll we'll have to take a trip there. But okay, so you were saying you're inspired by all these different kinds of people. And what's authentic for you is to put out many different genres. Yeah. So I would say if that's what you want to do or anyone who's listening, you just kind of have to do it or else there'll be a festering thing inside that you'll just want to do it. Right. And we have the freedom to explore all these different genres. And I do think they inform each other. For example, the jazz record I did is informing the yacht rock record because a lot of that stuff, the Steely Dan and all that is all rooted in jazz. So yeah, it's just have fun. I mean, If someone has a problem with it, I don't know. I don't know. Again, it's those reactions, right? Like how much value are you going to give the reactions? Are they going to get more attention than your desires? Right. And I kind of feel like it's that old Dr. Seuss quote, wherever you go, there you are. I mean, as long as you're the through line Mm -hmm. and your authentic voice is coming through in all of those different genres, Mm -hmm. your true fans are going to get it and Mm -hmm. love it. Because it's Mm -hmm. still coming through you. Totally. And I think we're seeing it more and more. I mean, obviously, like actors pick many different films to be in different types. But authors are now writing all different kinds of books. My friend Chris Hadfield, who's an astronaut, he just wrote like a murder novel. Like, yes, just do what you want to do. Yeah, he's a lovely guy. Lovely. Well, okay. I love you, Em. You're amazing. I have a final question and it's a two-parter. So thinking back to your 21-year-old self, maybe 22, who has just gotten dropped by the record label about to do her independent stuff, I wonder if you two, like that version of you and you now, were standing in the same room looking at each other. What do you think she would say to you today and why? I think she would say, go for it. Like, go for all the things that you want to want to do. And have more fun. I think we get to a stage where we're trying to pay all the bills and be a good mom and all that stuff that we just like stop having fun or we really compartmentalize it like, oh, we're going to just have fun this night with these girls or whatever. Like, let's do it all the time. Yeah. I love that. And to flip it, what would you say to her and why? (laughs) Is that what you're going to wear? Uh, Yeah, there's some awesome fashion choices in the late 90s. Lately, I've answered this question by saying don't do anything differently because, again, you're going to do what you want to do. But I think maybe something that I was lacking, and you're just kind of pulling this out of me now, the magic of Lauren, is to bond with powerful women. Because I think as a pop artist then, I was very much kind of a leaf in the wind with trends and what my manager guy wants me to do and whatever and I could have really used that the power of other women around me who I trusted so whether that's yeah a mentor or fellow artist or just a trusted girlfriend or uh, again doesn't need to be limited to that gender but someone who you really trust just kind of develop a little handful of people like a network a handful of people that you really trust yeah I feel like throughout the ages they've really tried to keep us apart because they knew if we were all together and 
united and realizing that collaboration beats competition, we would mm-hmm. be unstoppable. Mm-hmm. And um, that. grateful for people like you who paved the way for us all to realize that. And I can't wait to hear the Yacht Rock. <laughs> Thanks. And thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening and thanks to my guest, M. Griner. For more info on M, follow her at M. Griner. Go to her website, mgriner.com, and buy her awesome book, The Healing Power of Singing, on her website, Amazon, or wherever you get your books. Thanks to Phil Svitek for editing this podcast. You can follow him at Phil Svitek. Thanks so much to Unleashed producer, Emily Shulmanovich. You can follow her at We Can't Find Emily. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow Unleash on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also tag M at M Griner so she can share too. My wish for you this week is you start talking about what you're excited about instead of what you're disappointed by. That one little perspective shift has totally changed my creative life and honestly my life as a whole. I love you and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.